welcome to the Maritime Podcast. I'm Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News, and today we are in conversation with Mikhail Bo, CEO of Core Power, and we will be talking about using advanced atomic energy for shipping. Welcome, Mikhail. Thank you, Marcus. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. I think just to set this all, set the scene here a bit, maybe you can explain a little bit about what it is Core Power is doing and how this relates to the energy transition for shipping. The solution we're developing, Marcus, is one that is rooted in the need for moving to a sustainable zero emission energy system. And we've got to remember in this, you know, that Energy is not something we make. Energy is something that exists. And, you know, we can measure our progress through history on how good we are at converting that energy into power. Now, we've gotten ourselves into a funk over the last hundred years by burning plants, burning fossil fuels, which pollutes the air. And we've got to transition away from that. We've got to move into other energy systems. So we don't have that many choices, really. I mean, we've got the sunlight, we've got wind, we've got rain from hydro, we've got geothermal power, which of course is the radioactive decay of of the center of our planet. And then we have the heavy elements that we can use to convert into power using atomic technologies. And this is one of the great inventions of humankind. You know, it's, it's gotten us into new areas of both science and exploration, which was never thought possible before. And We've come to a point, I think, now where, you know, this sort of nuclear, as we know it, the conventional nuclear technologies, the reactors that have been built around the world to provide electricity for, for power grids. Remember, these technologies, Marcus, were designed back in the 50s and 60s using slide rules. I mean, these were pre-computers and they're still being built today, the same old designs. Imagine if we had cars that were still designed in the 1950s or computers that were designed in the 1960s and 70s. It's gotten stuck. And they, of course, are enormously large, these power stations. And the technology that powers that is one that is now sort of, you know, we've come to a point where we can't really scale that up much more than what we have. You know, we can't keep on building that sort of old technology. And the reason for that is twofold. One is it's not actually very efficient. You know, in the conventional nuclear reactors that we have today, which are enormous, by the way, we only use up about 1% of the energy of the fuel that goes into them. Then we take that out. In some countries, it becomes spent fuel or unused fuel. Some people like to call it nuclear waste, but it's not really waste until you waste it, if you know what I mean. And in most other countries, it gets reprocessed and put back in. So you have this sort of cycle of reprocessing and using this fuel. And it's expensive and it takes time. What we need to do in order to tackle things that can't just be connected to the grid, you know, like ships, heavy industry, et cetera. We can't, you know, reduce emissions from these sectors by electrifying them, plugging them into the socket. What we need to do is we need to be able to generate that kind of power on site. What we're doing is that the concept here is is that we're making a small reactor, but a brand new form of reactor. We don't call this nuclear, we call it advanced atomic. And the reason we call it advanced atomic is because it's so radically different from those conventional nuclear reactor technologies that we had in the past. And that's really from two particular points of view. One is that we're using a reactor design called a molten salt reactor. The molten salt reactor is a liquid field reactor completely changes the way reactors work. And the great advantage of a molten salt reactor is that it is not 1% energy efficient, it is closer to 95% energy efficient. 
which means that we use up all that energy that sits inside that. We don't take it out and we process it or waste it. We, we keep on using it, which means that we can run these on very small amounts of fuel very efficiently. And of course, they don't emit anything. And then all those, all those sort of public perception issues about nuclear, which is to do with the potential for accidents and the fear around radiation and all these kind of things kind of gets is taken away by the modern salt reactor because, you know, they don't have the ability. There's no inherent ability in these machines to spread toxins into the environment if there was to be a leak or something like that. So, you know, it has a has a, has a a real good foundation for something that we can be enthusiastic about. It produces extraordinary amounts of energy very, very efficiently in a you know, very beneficial and benevolent way. And it's small enough for us to be able to use it in heavy industry, heavy transport, like shipping. And because of the efficiency, it means that we can get very long lives out of it. So you've got a technology here that's, you know, transformative. There's no emissions from this. And zero emissions comes a standard here. It's not a, it's not a feature of the technology that we've sort of added on the way that you do with carbon capture or other things like that. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a radical new way for the future, and I think this, we need we need a silver bullet, Marcus. And you know, this is this is as close as we've been. I mean, it certainly does sound radical compared to the sort of solutions that we're currently sort of being discussed for shipping. Would this be in the format of actually installing these sort of molten salt reactors on board the ships, or would it be in terms of them producing in some kind of clean energy that could then be used in shipping? How would how would this be structured? It's a question that the market the market can answer, right? I mean, you can do both, really. I mean, ideally, you would want to use the electricity that you can generate from these reactors in the most efficient way. I mean, the idea that you make electricity to make hydrogen that you use to turn into electricity is kind of nuts. So if you could generate electric power directly and have that turn the propellers, that would be the most efficient way to do it. There are political hurdles to overcome in that. You know, we have to convince countries and ports and authorities around the world that that's the right way to do it. And I think that's going to take a bit of time. There's national security issues from, you know, nuclear navies, that kind of thing that need to be overcome. But I think we'll get there. So I think absolutely the end game is you can have a container ship, you know, like the Ever Given, for example, you know, doing 32 knots for 30 years without refueling on zero volatility and the cost of that propulsion as a fully electric ship with zero emissions. I mean, that would be... That would be a, a good, that would be a good outcome. But in the immediate future, I genuinely believe that the best way to do this is to install these on floating refineries. So if we can take an FPSO type installation, you know, maybe built in Japan with American reactors regulated around the, the systems here in the United Kingdom, you know, we get this sort of global cooperation around what's really an exportable product. You'd have floating refinery that could generate green hydrogen from seawater add nitrogen to it and you've got ammonia, add CO2, which could come from carbon capture, you've got green methanol. And that's genuinely green fuel. I mean, you know, it takes seawater and air and turns it into a fuel you can use with electric power that doesn't emit anything. That's sustainable. Because of the sheer power that we can get from this as well and the systems that we can build, we believe that we can get the cost of that hydrogen down to be super competitive with the sort of blue-gray hydrogens that are being talked about by the oil majors, which is, in fact, more polluting than the hydrogen that... uh, yeah, you know, it's more polluting than what we have today. Don't forget, hydrogen, you know, it's, it's one of those things that everyone talks about and has this issues. 80 million tons of hydrogen is produced today as an industrial gas, comes from steam methane reforming. That produces more CO2 and more greenhouse gas emissions than all of shipping does. So if we, shipping moves towards 
hydrogen made in that way, you know, we're not making it better, are we, Marcus? We're, <laughs> we're kind of getting the wrong way. So, we, you know, we need to think about how this stuff is made, not just how we can use it. And I think these reactors on a floating production platform that can be scaled up, can be flexible, it's movable, it doesn't need a site license, it's in the territorial waters of countries that have the wherewithal to regulate this type of technologies. Is an absolute wonderful part of the future. US, UK, Japan, other countries that would join in this, absolutely. There are two ways of doing this, but initially it looks like you'd go probably more down the path of a sort of floating production type facility to produce something like fuel, like green hydrogen. Um, where are we at with this process at the moment? We've gotten really quite far. You know, the one thing that is worth noting is that molten salt reactors, the basic concept of a molten salt reactor isn't new. That was this is something that you know the Americans came up with in the 1950s and 60s. It was a genius bit of discovery and invention. But you know, it never really got very far because there wasn't the political will to keep on supporting it as an alternative to the new atomic power that was developed at the time and which also being used by the US Navy. So it was sort of shelved, rediscovered about 10 years ago. And the consortium that we're working in, which is a consortium of an organization called Terra Power in the United States, Southern Company, one of the big US utilities, Urana, French National Nuclear Fuels Company, and 3M, we're developing a, if you like, a, a modern version of the modern salt track. And that's a program that started in 2016, supported by the US government through the Department of Energy. And in December of last year, so just before Christmas, we received a, a very large award from the US Department of Energy to, if you like, move to the construction phase of this. So the first proof of concept reactor around this new modern, if you like, space age uh, molten salt reactor is with us in a few years time. And then once that's done, you know, all the proof of concept is done, all the you know, validations, licensing starts, we start to build out larger machines that we can actually deploy. So by the end of this decade, I assume that we'll have something that we can demonstrate that really shows what this can do. And then you know, the lovely thing, Marcus, is that you can you can take something as small as this and you can factory make it, right? You can make it on an assembly line. You make it in a shipyard, of course, or you can have assembly lines where you can make this the way that you make aircraft and cars and you know other advanced machinery, which means that we can bring the cost down substantially and we can pump out large volumes of these reactors. And that means that we can deploy them in fairly large scale production. And you mentioned, you know, the sort of choice of where to go with this first. I think the lowest hanging fruit here is hydrogen production and green fuels production. That's what the transition fuel for this fleet is going to be. And we can't look away from the fact that, you know, we've got a lot of ships out there that need fuel and, you know, you can't just scrap them all and build brand new ones. Shipyards might like that. <laughs> you just sort of described the, the, this test project you've got that's going to be coming up in the US with different partners. So what's Core Power's involvement in this and how did you yourself get involved with this? Well, we're sort of the commercial midwife on this. You know, there is a um, there's a lot of technology that gets developed without necessarily a, a commercial outlet, without a commercial target. It's science, it's technology, it's fantastic. And, you know, that bridge between the technology being developed and then actually being deployed in the market is often one of the hardest parts, right? Especially in something like this, which is highly regulated. There's lots of politics involved in it. You have got public opinion, you've got all the regulations, you've got all the technical stuff that goes around. The reactor itself is only a part of this. 
imagine you know the entire socket if you like that that rock re reactor has to be plugged into which is not just a, a technical and ecosystem you know with power conversion and control systems and, and all the various things that go around it it's also the support maintenance servicing decommissioning the regulatory aspects of how you move this stuff from one jurisdiction to another etc so there is an enormous amount of work to be done really in commercializing this so you know out of the partners of the parties in the in this uh, on this team with a commercial part for this because it's the combining the best of maritime with the best of advanced atomic we have a brand new business opportunity here which is quite astounding actually you think about the amount of fuels that are needed for the current fleet you think about the need to decarbonize and build new types of assets out there i mean you know if you're talking about small modular very efficient molten salt reactors in their thousands I mean, that's that's a big idea. Certainly is. Obviously, yourself, you come from a shipping background, largely in the risk management side of the business. When you go out and talk to people in shipping about this concept, what's the reaction? The reaction is one that has changed a lot over the last three years, Marcus. When I first started talking to people about this, because, you know, th this idea doesn't come from Atomic looking for a market. You know, it comes from... Shipping. I mean, I've spent three decades in this in this business, and you know, I've tried to build enterprise models around the organisations I've worked for, and looked at the kind of risks that we face with you know future disruption of technology, and tried to understand exactly what would happen, you know, in the longer term when we start to take down the energy systems that power our ships. You start talking to, to, to owners and charters and shipping organizations about this. I mean, three years ago, it was kind of looking at me with a bit, with a, with a little bit of you know incredulity. You know, so really, are you are you serious? Do you think that you could you could introduce something like that into our industry? So well, you know, let's let's look at it from from certain points of view. And some people would say, yeah, that's a really good idea. Although they were in a small minority. And then you had a large group of people who said, yeah, you see what you mean. You know, this is something that. You know, if you can make it work, it would be would be quite interesting. And then he had an even larger group saying, "You're crazy, man! You know, <laughs> this isn't going to work." That's really changed in the last three years. We now have more than half of everyone we talk to enthusiastic about the possibilities of what's going on. That's big seismic shift, in my opinion. And that's just after three years. Then we have a smaller group that say, "No, I'm still a little bit skeptical, but we see what you mean, and we're quite." quite keen for, 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 you know, to keep an eye on what's going on. And then we've got a, actually a dwindling group who say, no, not going to work. Because, yeah, you know, it, it, the fact is, this is going to work. You know, this is a very good idea. You have fantastic new technology used in the best possible way for a problem to solve a problem that we otherwise cannot solve. I mean, without atomic, we cannot solve the climate crisis. It is as simple as that. Those who say that we can do it only with solar, only with wind, only with geothermal, any, it, it, the maths don't add up. You can't do it. You have to have all five systems in there, but you can't put sunshine to drive a tanker. You can't have wind to drive a tanker. You can't have geothermal or hydro do it. You need to have ways of, of generating dispatchable, large amounts of reliable power and that's how we do this and i think that's a realization that's spreading around the world so you know just to add to that 
markets. If we think a little bit ahead, what's popular today is not, not necessarily going to be popular in 10 years' time. And what's not popular today could well be popular in 10 years' time. So we see this shift and we think over the next five, six you know, to 10 years, enthusiasm around this will, will continue to grow. And I don't see why it shouldn't, really. It's all about you know, people having access to information, understanding more about it. It's interesting to hear that sort of process that's gone on and how people are, are viewing it. You put out there in terms of the pilot project that's going to happen in the States. Presumably that's an on-land project. Yeah, that happens in Idaho, uh, about 900 miles from the sea. But, you know, that's where the first uh, that's where the first submarine reactor was built. The Nautilus reactor was built there in 1954, and it worked just as well because it was built on land. Now, of course, it happens on land first. There's, a, there's plenty of testing to be done, plenty of validation to be done, plenty of experimentation to be done with that first prototype. And that happens on land, of course. But the demonstration systems, we can start moving out onto the water. Okay. So your interest in this is very much the commercialization of this technology. Where does this go from, you know, being that sort of test project out in Idaho to something that you can start rolling out commercially as a realistic proposition to people? That is one of the big projects that we have in front of us now. And I don't have all the answers to that, Marcus. You know, and I'd be I'd be foolish if I sat here and said that I did. But I have the outlines of it and I have the direction in which it will go. And it's something along the lines of this. Once that proof of concept reactor is there and it, people can come and see it, regulators can come and see it, you can see what it does. We can test all of the various scenarios you simply can't do in, in, you know, in simulations using supercomputers. And we've expanded that into a demonstration program where you've got the actual size of the machines that we're after. Those machines, we can serially prototype. So say you took 10 of them and you put them on a specially manufactured hull and you had hydrogen production, ammonia production facilities on that. And that was off the coast of, say, the United States. That in itself is proof of the concept that you can generate hydrogen, ammonia, green fuels, what were any type of green fuels and, and green gases from this without any emissions at all. That is a massive commercial opportunity. And we believe that that first project is consortium financed and consortium built. Some participation from partners we already have. So we've got partnerships across the industry. We've got large investors behind us in this who are really not in it just for the early phases of this, but really want to go all the way to the to the commercial side of this, where the multi-billion dollar opportunities are, as well as you know, third-party investors, you know, large funds, oil and gas and uh, companies, companies with with distribution networks for fuels, etc., that would come in. So you can imagine the way it is. Take a leaf out of the oil and gas industry, right? How do you finance a project? How do you discover that there's oil in the ground? How do you get that out? How do you, you know, refine it, get it out to customers? It, it's a similar kind of build out. And one that we see a lot of interest in at the moment, and people, a lot of course, a lot of companies are saying that, you know, we'd like to be part of this, but, you know, we want to be part of that. We want to help eat the cake, not make the cake. So, you know, I think they're on standby to do that. So, it's all of the various aspects of this that have to be built before we get there, which is all the ecosystem around the technology, ecosystem around the regulation, ecosystem around the financing of this, the leasing of it, the decommissioning of it, all that kind of thing that you know, stands in front of us for the next few years. I'm fully convinced that's something that we'll, we'll succeed in. I mean, I think kind of like one of the obvious things that strikes you when you talk about this project is the regulatory aspect. Oh. I think as soon as you mentioned that word atomic, 
people have all sorts of visions come into their heads. It sounds like in the US you might have some sort of process to go through since the project is set, being set up in the US. Does that sort of ease that regulatory process in some way? Or? So I believe so. You know, if we did this in a country without atomic power, if we tried to do this in Norway, for example, where I come from, you know, I think it would be 100 years before we even got close to this. In the US, I think we can do this. The US government has quite clearly stated that it's a it's an aim to reassert itself as the leader in the atomic energy space, right, as being the technological leader and being the, the country of choice where people buy their atomic technologies from. And, you know, to do that, it's not just about making old products cheaper the way they do it in China and Russia. It's about building new things, things that are better, things that are vastly superior to anything we've had before and things that you can use for things that we couldn't do before. So we have you know, the fact that this is this program is being supported by the US Department of Energy and built in the US National Laboratories. And it's testament to the fact that, you know, this is as close to the front line as you're ever going to get. U.S. regulations, I'm not an expert in this. Of course, there are members of the team that are experts on this. But we see some really, really hopeful things. We see both political statements being made by the current administration that are very supportive of advanced atomic. We see the regulators themselves sort of leaning in and understanding that there has to be new rules around new technology. You can't just force it to fit into old rules. And that's that's progression. I think that's that's absolutely right. And I think a lot of countries look to the United States for leadership on this stuff. The UK certainly does. Japan does. You know, other countries which are progressive and where we think this is really where the birth of all this new system will, will, will come from is, um, you know, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be looking to the US. We'll be collaborating with the US on it. So we think it's it's the right choice. I mean, I think one of the issues is with atomic power, actually power of all types in many senses, that nobody really wants this stuff in their backyard, right? be a coal-fired power station or an atomic one, nobody really wants to live next to one. And if you say to someone, we're going to put an atomic-powered FPSO off the shore of California, you can see where the objections are going to come. How do you sort of overcome that perception of this? And, and explain that, I mean, obviously you are saying that this technology is safe, and how do you explain that? It's really a question of what are people's perception of various energy systems, and you have to compare these things, right? I mean, you can't just say there is a fear of nuclear because of something that happened in the past. You have to look at what that was and why that was and where did it come about. You know, and just look at the facts, markets, right? So here, let me give you a couple of facts. So you've got fossil fuel industry, right? Oil, you know, diesel, gas, coal. You know, the air pollution from that is now proven to kill prematurely about eight and a half million people a year. It's incredibly wasteful. That's air pollution. Then you've got the coal industry, the coal industry, which is the largest polluter of all of this, which produces vast majority of electric power that we have around the world, Maybe not necessarily in, in, in this country, but in, but in other large countries, emerging markets, etc. You know, people think of nuclear waste as something terrible, as something dangerous. It's far from it. I'll explain that in a second. The amount of nuclear spent nuclear fuels generated since the first reactor was built in 1942 until this very day is the same as what the coal industry produces in toxic sludge every hour. Right? So we have to compare like for like, you know, oh yes, nuclear is nuclear is something that we don't want in our backyard because we've seen it on The Simpsons or we watched the Chernobyl episode or there is some guys out there who says that radioactivity is, is dangerous. The fact of the matter is that, you know, no one has been harmed 
from radiation from a civilian nuclear power plant since 1986 when the, when the, when the Chernobyl accident happened. The Chernobyl accident is as relevant to modern you know, atomic power today as the Titanic is to current shipping, right? It's, it's, it's just a, it's an outlier. The waste issue, it's only waste if you waste it, Marcus. You know, this actually just unused fuels. That's what it is. <laughs> if you reprocess them, they're not waste anymore, right? So there's only a few countries around the world, including the US, that doesn't allow reprocessing and that, you know, you need to store this. But it's metal. Right? It doesn't leak into the environment. It doesn't, you know, spread with the wind or go into your rivers or anything like that. So this fear of nuclear is largely unfounded. I think there's one thing that will change is that people will, you know, we'll keep on, we'll keep on informing. There's a large group of people around the world who keep on informing and keep educating and keep, keep, keep showing what this is. In schools, they start to teach in chemistry and in physics, you know, what this is all about. Start to show what radiation actually is all about. Radiation doesn't kill. Radiation cures. We don't use radiation to kill anyone. We use radiation to cure cancer and to cure to cure, cure uncurable diseases. Radiation is the basis of life on this planet, Marcus. Geothermal heat is the radioactive decay of the, what keeps this planet hot. You know, radiation is a great thing. There are beaches in Brazil where people you know, go to lie on the beach because sand is so radioactive that it, 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 it cures them of rheumatism and other things like that. It's called the health beaches. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of really poor information out there about this. And I think if we just think, oh, we're afraid because we're afraid, well, then we've got to question why we're afraid. What is it that we're afraid of, really? When coal, when oil and gas and coal, and fossil fuels in general, just kills so many people. And we know for a fact that solar and wind just isn't going to be able to make the transition. Maths don't add up. Well, Let's question the rest of it as well, then see what it is that we are afraid. And I think that's going to happen. There's a new generation coming that really looks at this differently than us oldies, you know. Some of what you said there, I could see the former residents of Fukushima perhaps disagreeing with you, that being a more recent nuclear accident. I don't necessarily think that's the case. The amount of radioactive release from the Fukushima reactors is, 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 is tiny. And the fact is, if you look at the materials, you know, the iodine and the cesium and the strontium that spread into the environment, these are completely gone within less than two months of the release. Not one single person in the vicinity of the evacuated and the areas around Fukushima you know, were harmed by radiation, contracted cancer as a result of radiation, and never mind died of this radiation. But there's this public fear that, oh my God, there's a nuclear disaster and therefore everyone must leave. And that, you know, I think killed a lot of people, the stress from that. But no one, not, not a single person has died from radiation. I think it's it's overblown. You know, panic. It's It was a panic thing. And was it really necessary? You believe that you can... Through education, you can overcome that kind of fear that there is that's around us. Totally. I mean, think back in time, Marcus. The things we were afraid of 100 years ago, we're not afraid of now, right? Superstition, conspiracies, bad information, you know, all sorts of things that we were afraid of that we know for a fact now, simply through education and knowledge and, and logic, just weren't the case. This, this, we'll, we'll get around to it. It takes time, but we'll get there. Okay. I sort of covered most of the ground that I had, the questions I had to ask. I don't know if you'd like to sort of wrap up in terms of where you see this all heading. I think what I'd like to add to this whole thing, Marcus, is that dealing specifically with the shipping industry here, and the shipping industry is only one of many, many industries that have to be decarbonized or go to a, a zero energy system, right? So it's not as if we are unique in needing to do this. 
I think it's the perfect starting point for a lot of things, simply because if we can take maritime expertise and maritime ingenuity, and we can apply it together with this new advanced atomic technology, we can actually create new markets. We can create new industries, new platforms on which the maritime industries can grow. I mean, if you had floating production of green hydrogen off the coast of this country here in the United Kingdom, for example, I mean, feeding that national strategy of, of wanting to switch the terrestrial energy systems towards green fuels, green hydrogen in particular, is a must. So there you've got floating production, you've got, you know, you've got sea transportation of, of this gas feeding a, a national infrastructure. So you've got the ability to do other things. You've got mobile water desalination. You've got things like plastics reformation, right? Collection of plastic waste from land, putting it onto specialist vessels that uses the power from this technology to either reform it through crushing or, or heating to create new products out of recycled plastic. Sustainability is one thing that we can build in, in all manner of different parts of our society if we combine maritime with, with advanced atomic. And I think that's that's the exciting bit, not just you know whether we can make a, an MR2 go a bit faster. <laughs> it's quite a, a utopian vision that you give there. It'd be very interesting to see where this all this goes. It's the future, Marcus. You know, we've got to we've got to open our minds and think about what's possible. I mean, how did we get here in the first place? You know, we got here in the first place by making new things, by inventing things, by figuring out how to use new things for new things, right? Make new things out of it. And technology opens new doors. You know, it's not just about trying to find new knobs to fiddle and buttons to press so that we can make diesel engines cleaner. I mean, we've got to move forward. We've got to take new steps in new directions and see what we can build on that. And it could be that a lot of other things change as a result of this. Right? It doesn't just stay the same. Um, and I think that's I think that's exciting. I wake up every morning and I think I'm excited about that. Thanks for taking the time today. It's been really interesting. And I'm really going to be fascinated to see how this project progresses and um, the whole process of turning it into a reality. Thanks, Marcus. It's been really good talking to you.